Take a trip back with me to the 1950s. America is in a post-war boom with the growing middle class and rising wages among white folks. More families own an automobile and are traveling on America's growing highway system. A nascent civil rights movement, fresh off a Supreme Court victory in Brown versus Board, advocates against Jim Crow laws in the South with boycotts and sit-ins. And the new fusion, well, new fusion genre of rock and roll plays over the airwaves. This music with roots in black rhythm and blues, jazz and gospel, creates a moral panic among certain sectors of white America, concerned that their children will be corrupted by the raw sounds coming from the likes of Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Buddy Holly, and of course Elvis Presley. For a country beginning to reckon with its racist past, and listening, beginning to listen to music that resonated across racial lines, the country was getting all shook up. Something similar could, could be said to have happened in Jerusalem on that day nearly 2,000 years ago, when Jesus entered on a donkey and her colt. Indeed, that's the price, precise term that Matthew uses when he says, the whole city was in turmoil. It's the word that means seism, seismic. The whole city was all shook up by Jesus' arrival. But why was Jesus' procession into the city so earth-shattering? Well, Jesus had a reputation for preaching, teaching, and healing by the time of, of his arrival. Jesus is also from Galilee. While Galilee was inhabited by Jews, there was a distinct difference between Jews from Galilee and Jews from Judea, a difference that's more highlighted in John's Gospel. Judea, with the holy city of Jerusalem, was the center of power in the Jewish world. The temple was the navel of the earth, where earth and heaven met, where the presence of God dwelled. It was the only place authorized to offer sacrifice to God. Galilee, by contrast, was provincial, rural. Parts were inhabited by Gentiles. Jesus would have had no friends in high places, no one who could have helped him gain the support of the religious elite. It is extraordinary that Matthew records that this craftsman-turned-preacher commands such a reception upon his entry. Perhaps it is precisely in his humility that we find the reason why. Jesus acts like a king, to be sure. He requisitions animals for his own use, just like a king would do. He enters the temple as a sovereign, regaining rightful territory. He drives out the buyers and sellers from its precincts. Yet there is one key difference in how he does this. He does this without the aid of weapons or armies. He does them without hurting anybody. Oh, sure, he may have hurt business that day, overturned some tables, but he didn't hurt anybody. Jesus' actions are the actions of the rightful king, a king who is different from any other. He is a king who refuses to swing the sword, a king who refuses to kill to achieve his goals. 
Yet his target is clear, a religious and political elite that turns worship of God into an industry. Worship of God into an industry. Sound familiar? Surely we don't do that today. Am I right, pastors? Surely we don't turn our faith into God, into an industry. The moment this really hit home for me was when I went on my LinkedIn profile to update something, and yes, I get the irony of a pastor having such a profile in the first place, and I read that I could add a summary to my profile, and they offered, they offered a sample of what such a summary would look like. And it started with experienced pastor, with a demonstrated history of working in the religious institutions industry. <laughs> oh yeah, and did I add, I could also add that I was competent in Microsoft Word. <laughs> For the corporate world, my calling, actually our calling as church together, is reducible to an industry. An industry that provides motivational messaging, inspirational music, and a feel-good experience on Sunday morning. But should we be surprised that the wider culture thinks this about the church? Since the Emperor Constantine, the church has all too often been enamored of political and cultural power. Rather than standing against over and under dominant culture, with its emphases on money, power, domination, all the things that the devil tempts Jesus with doing, the church has sought to integrate itself with the culture to gain its own influence and power. And while it's very easy to point the finger at religious lobbying groups and mega churches with celebrity pastors, massive judgments, and professional bands with fog machines, we can forget that small mainline congregations can be seduced by this way of thinking too. We too can desire to be big for the wrong reasons. We can desire an earthly kind of greatness while neglecting the things that make for greatness in heaven. Jesus doesn't desire celebrity. He doesn't desire earthly greatness or power. Such things are part and parcel of the devil's logic, which has been a recurring theme as we've been looking at Matthew. Rather, Jesus desires what has always been his, God's people. Jesus desires to reconcile God's people to his Father. A reconciliation that is foretold in the prophets, that we heard about in Isaiah today. A reconciliation that is not limited to Israel, but but encompasses all peoples. God's house of prayer is for all peoples. To restore true worship of God based in mercy and love, not in power and domination and money. To shake up an institution too much in love with its own fragile power and influence. And indeed, the religious apparatus in Jerusalem was fragile. It would collapse some 40 years later. To do that, to reconcile God's people to God, one of, the, one of the steps in that is opening holy spaces to all kinds of people. Do you notice what Jesus does right after the Palm Sunday procession? 
we, uh, we broke it up today in our liturgy, so it, do it doesn't quite come across as clear, but right away in Matthew, after, after, um, after entering the city, he goes into the temple immediately and drives out the buyers and sellers. But, there is some, but the void is occupied pretty quickly. The blind and lame come for healing. Jesus is healing sick people, people who have been disabled. Jesus is also being welcomed by children. Matthew says children are saying, Hosanna. Remember, Jesus has already said that children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said it a couple of times in Matthew. The temple, for a brief moment in Matthew's gospel, becomes what it was intended to be, what Isaiah dreamed of, a house of prayer for all peoples. Of course, we know what will happen from here. The empire will strike back. Jesus will be arrested. An adoring Sunday crowd turns into a murderous Friday one. The palms will wilt as the full wrath of Rome and the religious apparatus will pour itself out on Jesus. But Friday will not be the end. Everything will be shaken. In Matthew, quite literally, on Friday, there is a huge earthquake at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. And in a greater sense, on Sunday, when Jesus overturns the old order of sin, death, and the devil. What happens on that Palm Sunday is a foreshadowing of both Easter and the end of all things, when heaven and earth are made new and God's people enjoy perfect communion with God forever. An invitation that's given to you and to me. As for now, our, our greatness is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Not in anything we do, not in our music, as good as it may be, not in our worship, as inspiring as it may be, and certainly not in my preaching. And it sure isn't in the church as institution. Jesus has shaken that up. Our greatness is in him. Thanks be to God. Amen.